Hey, it's Karen Hunter from the Karen Hunter Show on Sirius XM Urban View. Here's a highlight from today's show. Let me welcome founder and executive director of the Power Coalition of Equity and Justice in Louisiana, Ms. Ashley Shelton. Welcome to the Karen Hunter Show. Thank you. It's so good to be here. Good to see you. Um, and first of all, thank you. So um, I know you've been on, on the ground working with disaster relief, relief in the midst of the hurricane uh, that just uh, shook a whole lot of states, um, including yours. Um, and it's not the first, second, or third. We're talking, you know, Katrina, and you know, it's like every year you're in that that belly, you know, of of mm-hmm. you know, the eye of that that storm always coming your way. What what drove you to organizing, and what drove you to becoming an activist to to provide justice? Yeah, no, um, you know, again, thank you for having me. I think, you know, for power, you know, so I spent a lot of my career in philanthropy. In fact, I worked for the Disaster Recovery Foundation right after Hurricanes Katrina. And so I, I did Hurricanes Katrina, Rita, Gustav, Ike, BP oil spill. That happened on my birthday. And I, I tease folks, that's when I said I had to stop living in the disaster paradigm. <laughs> and taught me was that like we had we had the Bush Clinton Katrina funds so we had like 50 million dollars we had access to people with power but we weren't getting enough money to the ground and change wasn't happening fast enough for the people you know most deeply impacted and so you know power coalition really is an outgrowth of of that very work of like how do we drive you know federal dollars um, to the people who need it most and you know and move beyond disaster capitalism and the folks that typically make money off of disasters while folks are still left um, you know without the things that they need and then consistently going through disaster time after time and at some point, you know, the, you know, the housing stock and all of the things, right, just can't take it anymore. And so for us, you know, you know, for me, it's been um, about building a pathway to power for folks who haven't traditionally had a voice and trying to move the needle for them and, and, and put them in direct contact with decision makers, which are the elected officials in their communities that are making decisions about ARPA dollars, disaster recovery dollars, whatever those dollars are, how are we creating uh, greater power and accountability um, at the community level for those dollars to actually reach them and do the things they're supposed to. Actually, um, I when when you when I hear you talk about sort of this disaster economy that has evolved for for folks in Hurricane Alley and 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 other places like Mississippi, Louisiana, it also makes me think about the fact that um, how do we hold people accountable for how money is actually spent when when money is earmarked and that sort of thing, and how do we get more people aware, more of the us, the citizens, aware and involved in that accountability? I think about all of these dollars that are going that will eventually make their way into organizations that are supposed to serve Black folks um, post George Floyd, but I I know how that Katrina situation was. I know how long my parents waited for their insurance company to pay out, let alone how long people who didn't have insurance waited for that FEMA money and those and all of those dollars that were supposed to go down during Katrina. It's people that still never got that money and definitely didn't get the numbers that they said. How do we think about understanding what accountability looks like. How can we put accountability in the hands of the people and not think, oh, well, some organization somewhere over there is going to call them out or hold them accountable. How do we get to that? 
You know, I think it's, you know, I always say that there's some, there's, there's so much power and truth, um, you know, in the words, you know, at some point folks get sick and tired of being sick and tired. And I think that we're there, you know, where pre- folks are worn out and we're at a place where I think, you know, we have the compounding tra- uh, traumas of both, you know, COVID and the Delta variant ravaged our state two, you know, two weeks before the storm. We had some, we had the highest number of deaths we've seen since COVID, as well as some of the highest incidents incidences of, uh, you know, of COVID. And so, you know, and then, and then Ida hits, right. And so I think that, you know, for me, I mean, I think that, you know, helping people push and drive those dollars to the ground has been just making those direct connections because I've been through so many storms because I know how FEMA works. I know the staff that then drives, um, you know, that then drives how FEMA then acts, right? And so, you know, and so part of it is, is that, you know, you kind of work in the top and the bottom, the grass tops and the grass roots, because you've got to, at one point, you know, like, so for example, you know, they, the, the thing that stopped the Ninth Ward from being rebuilt in New Orleans, they fixed that in the Stafford Act this year. So they addressed the airship issue around having clear title to your home mm. because of um, the impacts in Tennessee from flooding and other natural disasters. And But that was the very same provision within the Stafford Act that stopped the Ninth Ward from being able to rebuild fully and for those families to be made whole on the other side of, uh, you know, Hurricanes Katrina. And so we've got some work to do at the federal level to actually fix the Stafford Act so that it does what it's supposed to do. And then I think that people who don't get that, can you talk a little bit about that clear title to property just a little bit so people can understand what you're talking about? Because this happens in Mississippi and Louisiana a lot in terms of getting funding and disaster recovery. Sure. So basically what is, what happens is, I mean, you know how it goes, you know, grandma, uh, you know, big mama dies. Uh, she leaves the house, uh, you know, to, to, to your auntie, um, you know, her sisters and brothers, they're not worried about it. She took care of big mama. So she gets the house, but there's no legal title that gets exchanged between big mama and, and, you know, and auntie. Um, and, you know, and like, and there's no secession of, of, of the property. So there's no clear air, there's no clear title um, to the home. And so when that happens what the federal government says is that there's no there's I can't give money to you know all these when all these people technically have ownership because without clear secession you know it's it's auntie and all her sisters and brothers and all of their kids that now have some stake of ownership in this property um when we in, in reality in our families we know that these properties get handed down generation to generation um, and, and many times are multi-generational homes in and of themselves, right? Where you have multiple generations living within the same home. And so what they what they did was they actually, um, you know, um, Ossoff worked um, with a couple of folks um, at the congressional level and they fixed it this year for Tennessee. And so now I'm working in so Louisiana. What, what, what does the fix look like? So basically what they've decided is that there are other ways to show ownership of your property. And so now I've got to go work and educate all, you know, all the folks in Louisiana and Mississippi across the Gulf Coast to say, you know, that for the folks that won't even apply because they remember what happened during Katrina to say, that's no longer an issue. You can now, there are multiple ways to prove ownership and that's through, you know, electricity bills, anything that's in your name that you are consistently paying on this piece of property, you know, you can now, um, you know, receive FEMA funds because you can show that, you know, that you have um, some level of ownership of that, of that dwelling. And so that's, um, so, you know, that's exciting. That's huge. Cause again, it, it is, 
it is one of the singular things that you can point to for why uh, the lower ninth ward never came back as strong as as it could have was because of the of these issues. And so what you took away, you know, generational wealth in, in a community and it, it was never able, you know, to, to rebound. And then I think it's the, you know, one of the other things I think is really important to this is, is about trusting people with money. You know, we trust businesses. So the, the PPP loans, we got that money out the door. We wanted businesses to rebound. We even had a back end for fraud or all the, you know, all the, the fraud that they worried about. We, 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 but we didn't worry too much about it because it was businesses and we pushed those dollars out the door and we, we saved the economy. But when it comes to disasters, we don't shoot, we don't, we don't, you know, like we don't want to give folks that same opportunity to like trust people to do what's right for their family and their homes, right? Like that, like, like where's just like the child tax credit, this is $300 that's going in everybody's bank account that had, you know, that qualifies is going to their bank account every single month through the end of the year. You know, these things are game changers. We've seen how this is being a game changer in our communities, especially communities of color across this country. But when it comes to disaster, we have to start getting to the same place, all the bureaucracy and layers of bureaucracy, it's cheaper for them to just cut everybody that was impacted a check than it is for us to fight and deal with the bureaucracy and really for community to stand community and faith-based leaders to stand in the place of government because there's nobody because then it doesn't feel like they're ever coming right and i think yes. you know and i, I can tell you that more churches rebuilt homes in in mississippi and parts of louisiana that weren't not new or that were not new orleans than the actual government did largely because of unclear title. Yeah. Because so so let, me, let me ask this. Um, Ashley Shelton is here, founder and executive director of the Power Coalition of Equity and Justice in Louisiana. How much of it is cultural where where uh, or that the government understands that, you know, the people that are going to complain and actually, you know, force them to do things generally are not the black folk. So we can do whatever we want and get away with it because they're going to bitch and complain, but then they're not going to really get lawyers. They're not really going to challenge us. And a lot of our property gets seized. A lot of, a lot of that eminent domain stuff happens to us. Our farm, farm workers don't get their just due because the recourse we have not followed through, which is why we need organizers like you uh, to make sure how much of that is cultural. Like we were talking um, on Saturday with Dr. Carr about Howard and these other HBCUs and why um, they could get away with doing this black mold again and having these issues again, because internally we're not going to really hold them, but so accountable. Well, I think, you know, the one thing I would say that makes us a little different is that, you know, like disasters are, are equal opportunity, you know, um, in terms of how they, you know, like they, if you're in the, if you're in the, in the, in the, in the path of the hurricane, you in the path of the hurricane, white, black are indifferent. Uh, wait, now, wait, 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 but the ninth ward is not equal. Now you're right now. <laughs> go ahead. Go ahead. I'm no, sorry. because that, that hurricane hit everybody, but the, the racial inequity allowed for the ninth ward to get doubly, you know, and and not be rebuilt because I believe of the, the the complexion of the people who are there. Oh no, I totally agree with you. And we'll, but what I'm saying though is that like the you know like the that there absolutely is this cultural you know aspect to it. But the bigger piece to me is that like culturally the that eminent domain and the things that they were saying right after the storm, it is actually the action and advocacy of black people, black and brown people all over the state that said like my you're not gonna turn my house into a park because that was the plan. I mean you know the bring back New Orleans Commission and all mm -hmm. these other folks. They, you know folks saw they saw their their church was gone, their house was gone. 
lawn, everything was green, was green space. And so, so no, but I think culturally um, it's not because we're not going to sue and we're not going to put up a fight. I think what it is, is, is that the racial inequity is so powerful um, and so, so structurally strong in the deep South that it is hard to fight it. And I think that what was helpful is that, so usually in the deep South states like Louisiana, Mississippi, you know, you can get some alignment at the federal level. You can even get, you know, our three largest metros are run by, you know, African-American mayors. Um, and so I can work with the local and the, and the feds. And sometimes the state's an issue, right? It just depends, right? Mm-hmm. The states have been, you know, this has been great after Ida um, to work with. It depends on, you know, every administration is different for every storm. But I think with this particular opportunity, you know, we've been able to, you, you know, like you can leverage what needs to happen. And so like, for example, with with Hurricane Ida, you know, these folks are devastated, right? Like they've lost everything. FEMA's struggling to address the temporary housing issue and folks have been screaming, like, how is it that you you knew this was a hurricane, you know, a category four uh, hurricane on the anniversary of Hurricane Katrina and you didn't think you were gonna have to have any temporary housing available almost immediately after this storm for those folks that lost everything because there are plenty of them and there's still folks that don't have electricity, internet or clean water to drink, right? And and so like, there's some real stuff that we've got, to, we've got to address. And so in this particular instance, the state itself stepped up because FEMA couldn't move fast enough to be able to address the temporary housing issue. And I think it is because culturally folks are like, we're not gonna, we're not gonna keep doing this with, with government where we don't get the things that we need and the things that we want. Um, but I do think that, you know, again, like these disasters, you know, like there's certainly, like I said, equal opportunity in one way, but then because of the structural and, you know, structural racism and, um, and, and, and equity, you know, you certainly then see the recovery come, it happens very much so differently, right? Whose lights get turned on back, who, who, you know, we, our friends in uh, the River Parishes took a direct hit, you know, it's two weeks after the storm, no lights, no, you know, no internet, no anything. And so no, no, no plan on when it was going to come on. And, you know, and so we had to work with them to, um, you know, we had to work with them to, to make sure that, you know, like they were advocating and having their voices heard to make sure their electricity was put turned back on and that they had the resources to start the rebuilding process. But what's crazy is, is that this is the same community that, you know, you've got Sharon, you know, uh, with Rise St. James, this, this woman um, just won the Goldman Award for being one of the most powerful environmental activists in the country. And, you know, like two, like literally two weeks before the storm and, you know, and now she's lost everything, but she is one of the most powerful advocates. She has stopped Formosa from building, you know, a deadly chemical plant in her backyard of her community, Um, you know, but now is faced with, now I got to still advocate. I got to still protect my community and I got to figure out some way to rebuild my house. And, 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 and she's not even thinking about her house, but she's trying to help our neighbors rebuild their houses. And so, you know, it's all these layered things that um, that we're fighting in particular as black folks in, in, in these disasters in terms of trying to be whole on the other side of this. And so, um, you know, Sharon Levine is a, you know, is a true, you know, is a true fighter and, and they're not gonna hold her down. We just, they've been, we've been mucking and gutting. We've been providing hot food. We've been on roofs. We've been putting blue tarps. We've been doing all of those things, but you're right. I mean, I think what I always go back to is that you know, the federal government, both for the for both in response to COVID and to natural disasters, which COVID, the federal government is the only engine that has enough money to pay for and to restore, you know, our communities. And I think that we've got to make it accountable. I mean, we just did a roadmap to recovery around all of these ideas that the ARPA money, um, you know, the American Rescue Plan money that's coming to all of that's already come to some of our communities and is already in many of our states. How are we determining how those dollars are going to be get used when many of our cities are talking about surplus dollars? It's not surplus. Right. 
this right. money makes people whole. You know, people don't, people have lost their jobs. They behind on the rent. They got, you know, we are in the middle of a housing crisis. You know, like it can't be, it's not, there's no such thing as a surplus when people are hurting. And we're seeing these dollars being prioritized for police and other things instead of being prioritized for the things that we know help make people whole um, in the face of these, these tragedies that we've been through. And we, and I call them that on purpose. Like, you know, like there's real trauma having um, been dealing with, with COVID and Delta at the same time that we're dealing with, you know, disaster, you know, like natural disasters. And I do consider them both disasters, but they're combined traumas. And it's, it's a lot. It's a lot. Is there any sort of concerted or collaborative effort with national organizations that serve underserved folks or that serve Black folks in particular that are ringing the alarm on how are these dollars being distributed in our communities? I think about Mississippi, 38% of the state of Mississippi is African-American. Louisiana, 33% of the people in the state of Louisiana are African-American. You know what I mean? I mean, Alabama, South Carolina, 27% of the population is African-American. And we're oftentimes the last one to get our communities rebuilt and made whole or given those resources. If we, if we need housing instead of a new park, I don't want to see a dog park in my neighborhood if the people in my, if the houses in my neighborhood of people who've been legacy living there are falling apart or there's potholes in front of their houses or their water system is, is jacked up, right? How do we ring the alarm uh, for our people? 57% of Black folks live in the South right now today in this country. How do we ring the alarm to make sure that we get those dollars that are coming through in, in some of these plans? So no, so there's several of us that are working together at the national level to to do just that. I mean, I, you know, Cedric Richmond, uh, I mean, he was directly impacted by Hurricane Katrina. Everything he owned in his car with his dog. I mean, literally just dis completely displaced, traveling from town to town, trying to get find his way to, you know, a safe place after um, you know, after the after Hurricane Katrina. And so I think, you know, with this current administration, what we've been saying is that, you know, y'all have people in places that really understand what, what it is that we're going through, what this looks like, how it impacts community, how it, it, it sets a certain number of dominoes that, you know, to fall that then, you know, it, like I always tell folks, I said, you know, that the cost of helping somebody when it matters most is so minimal compared to what, what happens when you have, you know, when you have overlooked them and not supported them. And so instead of having to pay the couple of hundred dollars, you know, to help somebody patch their roof or uh, to replace uh, the tires on their vehicle or whatever that is, right, turns into, you know, $15,000 because you you refuse to address it when it when it was a small problem, you let it grow to now we got to tear the whole all this sheetrock out because there's mold, right? And you let all the, you know, like we didn't help people in enough, in enough time. And so we've been talking at the federal level about that very thing, like, you know, we've been working with pastors and, and organizing at every level of government. And so we've been holding FEMA's feet to the fire and FEMA's, you know, been been responsive. Like we have been saying, like, why are folks being denied um, when they apply to FEMA? Why are folks, um, you know, like we figured out that there was a way that they were communicating in the, le in the letter wrong, right? I was like, this is done. I was like, if, if people are, if your letter sounds like a decline letter, but you're really just saying you need more information, then just say you need more you need information. More information. Mm -hmm. <laughs> Ashley Shelton is here. Um, so what, what is it that you do that makes FEMA respond? What's your magic? What's, what's, what's the thing that you do that everyone listening who lives somewhere can deploy? 
I mean, I think a couple of things. So one, I mean, you know, if you live in a community that's prone to disaster, you you know, right? I, you know, I, I did a, I did an op-ed where I, you know, I just said, you know, one, you know, like don't let people uh, push this uh, this narrative of resilience on you. I, you know, people love to call us resilient, and I was like, and we are resilient, beautiful people. However, I said, I resilient is short term. I said I want to be trapped in some never-ending cycle of resiliency because no one wants to fix the problem that made me have to be strong in the first place. Like, no, fix it because it's not a life style like resiliency isn't a way of life like it's a short-term stretch until we can fix the things that are broken and so what I would tell folks is organize but it, it takes you know the things that have been working is working with um you know we worked we had a we had a zoom with over 155 you know faith leaders from across the state um that we organized to ask the hard questions what what's going on with temporary housing where's the money how are we going to get the money to the ground um how are people going to get you know get their problems addressed um and then two you know you know, to the point uh, Drew made, I mean, Louisiana and Mississippi has the largest black population in the country. Louisiana has the second, right? Mm-hmm. And this idea that, um, you know, like that, how are we mobilizing and using that voice and power to get what we want? And so we've also, another strategy is leveraging our local leaders, our state and local leaders to say, where are you in this? Who, who are you talking to? Where, you know, are you working with the, your state legislator? Are you working with the governor so that our voices are heard about what needs to happen here? You know, so for example, they set arbitrary deadlines at FEMA. They're like, okay, today's the last day for critical needs assistance. Well, if your community don't even have electricity or clean drinking water, how am I supposed to be applying for something when I don't even have internet, right? You know, like it just doesn't make sense. And so we've got to be able to move quicker. We've got to be able to be more thoughtful. But the, but the idea is the power is numbers and relationships and so you know one you know one of the most important things is always to speak for yourself because see people assume that because a disaster happened and you saw it on tv that you know like somebody in congress knows what actually happened to real people on the ground they don't know they're not here um you know and you have to be able to communicate your own story you've got to be able to call your congressman and say what are you going to do we have a a couple calls and somebody on twitter said um at Okay, uh, um, let me get, not give the name. Said I have so much to say on this disaster topic. I'm homeless now due to Ida, and I work to house homeless families. FEMA said my unit is livable. It's not all caps exclamation point exclamation point exclamation point. They are not even gonna going into homes to check damages. So how do you make an argument when somebody's on the phone, you know, telling you what your situation is, and they haven't been out there to see it? Yeah, no, I, I think that that's the very thing that we're fighting. I mean, we're, you know, like my thing is we bring those real everyday stories to them every day. I mean, I've got an email where it's like, you know, they've got equity officers, they've got, you know, like they got, you know, faith and neighborhood partnerships. And we've been really pushing them around like, you know, we, we are not, we're failing folks. And then you got to think about something interesting about Louisiana, 50% plus of the population lives Baton Rouge South. So the majority of the population yeah. And the majority of the state's tax base is Baton Rouge South. So that's South Louisiana, uh, you know, from Baton Rouge to New Orleans to Lake Charles, you know, you've got some of the major municipalities in, you know, in that, and that's part of the state. That was a part of the state that was directly devastated by Ida. So, you know, and so when then when you look at resources allocated versus the amount of people impacted, it's crazy, right? Because I was like, because when I looked at the numbers, I said the numbers can't be right because 
the 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 math of how many people live here and that were impacted versus who who is who needs help the numbers don't go together so no i we've heard we've heard so many stories and then here's the other interesting thing is that you know like and it's all about the the words you say and so we've been trying to help people figure out like if you say if you say you're homeless, right, then it triggers a whole nother set of services, right? So just trying to, you know, help people walk through this process, you know, has been really difficult. And we're trying to get the churches to really act as hubs so that we can push stuff right back up and out to the state and, um, um, and, and the federal uh, government. We have less than uh, three minutes. Let me go to Ty in New Orleans. Uh, he's in your backyard. Hi, Ty. Welcome. You're on with Ashley Shelton. Hi, Karen. It was actually my tweet that you read. Oh, okay. Well, there we go, Ty. Thank you. Yeah. Uh, so, so you you got you got your response. Yeah, I got my response, and I just you know it's it's really frustrating. And Ashley, thank you for a lot of the information that you've given because I'm on the front line here. I get on calls with the mayor of the city. I get on call because of my job. Um, it's such a daunting thing right now because you know, and I'm almost what past a month now of being homeless. I'm in an Airbnb with no internet, no TV. Um, when I'm finding landlords landlords are, I mean, I literally had a landlord to tell me, well, normally my rent would be 1300, but because of the storm, we're going to go up to 17. I mean, it's, it's, I'm just really, you know, frustrated for myself because I'm, it's me and my 90 year old grandmother, and this is hard to navigate, but to Mm -hmm. be in this position and have virtually everybody telling you that, okay, we don't have any resources for you, but I have to try to dole out these resources for everybody else. You know, it's, yep. it's it's just very, very frustrating. And I'm just really pissed at this point. No, I hear you. Look, we got some resources on our website at powercoalition.org. Um, but you can also email me at ashelton at powercoalition.org. And um, certainly if there's any way that we can help or uh, direct you to any resources, um, I'm happy to do so. Like I said, I have a few inroads and a few um, insights into, um, you know, some of the FEMA processes. And then I can also directly connect you with, um, you know, someone at FEMA to, to walk you directly through the process because they do have these disaster recovery centers and they're supposed to be able to walk you through the process and that you can make a request that they actually come out and survey the property. All right. Uh, that's powercoalition.org. That's where you can find her. Ashley K. Shelton. You can follow her on Twitter and you can email her at, at a Shelton at powercoalition.org. You are doing God's work. And I thank you for being here today to share uh, your insight and wisdom. Come back, Ashley. You got our open seat. Hey, this is Karen Hunter. You can listen to the Karen Hunter show live every Monday through Friday at 3 p.m. East on Sirius XM Urban View Channel 126 or anytime on the Sirius XM app.